On today's episode, we discuss all things Buddhism. Sarah actually gives me a quiz on Buddhism, and we talk about some of the deeper, maybe not quite as well-known topics about Buddhism. I'm Jacob DeRosset. We are here with Sarah Valley. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing great, Jacob. Thank you. Yeah, so today I thought I would try to stump Jacob on his knowledge of Buddhism because as you probably know, Jacob knows more about Buddhism than I do. He's read way more books about Buddhism than I have. I've gone on more retreats and have more training. My training is in Buddhism, but more on the experiential technique side of things. I've got some really obscure facts on Buddhism that I want to see if Jacob knows these. So you ready? Yeah. Okay. I think. All right. So this could possibly be, yeah. So this first one is, what was Buddha's birth name? There's a book about it. It's in the title of a book. I've heard it, but I can't remember. Buddha's birth name is Siddhartha. Okay. You might have heard of that book, Siddhartha. Yeah. Yeah. And for anybody who's interested, the 14th Dalai Lama, who's the Dalai Lama right now, his birth name was Lamo, I think is how you pronounce it. He's considered the Buddha by the Tibetans. So there's more than one Buddha. There's not just one Buddha. And they found Lamo at age two. All right, next one. What does the word Buddha mean? It's something along the lines of enlightened being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the awakened, a person who is awake, seeing reality as it is without any mistaken perceptions. So you know those statues of the Buddha that the Buddha is very happy and round. Is that Siddhartha? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I would assume so. Yeah, this one really got me. No, that Buddha, that statue that we all know and love is not Siddhartha. Siddhartha was really thin. You see drawings of Siddhartha that he's depicted as quite thin. But the round, happy Buddha is a Chinese awakened Buddha and Siddhartha was from Nepal. It wasn't called Nepal back then, but in Nepal now. And this Chinese awakened Buddha was a Zen monk from the 10th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it just makes for such a good statue Mm -hmm. that that's why everybody clings to that one, you know? Yeah, just you just get a warm, fuzzy feeling inside when you see that statue. Yeah. Yeah. When the Buddha died, did he name another spiritual leader to take his place? I don't think he did. You are right. Yeah, he did not. They asked him, they said, who do you name as your successor? And he said, no, there's no successor. The teachings Mm -hmm. stand as the teacher. The -hmm. teachings will be the teacher. So here's a good one. What's your opinion, Jacob? Is Buddhism a way of life, a religion, or a a philosophy? I really view it as a philosophy, but I think you could make it into anything just like I view it as a philosophy or or really even a psychology almost. I really kind of view the Buddha as a psychologist. What's your thought on that? My mom and I disagree about this. My mom's a Buddhist. I don't consider myself to be a Buddhist teacher, but I do consider myself to be a Buddhist on some level. But I went to world religions class when I was in ninth grade in high school, and that's One of the places where I learned about Buddhism was in world religion class. So I think that Buddhism is a religion, but my definition of religion is probably different than other people. And I have no issue with religion. I think being religious is completely fine. But my definition of religion is being part of a a group or teaching that teaches you what to do with your consciousness. Buddhism does teach you what to do with your consciousness. 
Yeah, I guess I could make a distinction there. I think that Buddhism is a religion, but I think that the Buddha was a philosopher, if that makes any sense, or even a psychologist. Yeah, I mean, there's so much psychology in Buddhism, and it completely, on so many levels, explains the nature of our minds. Yeah, but that whole idea of whether Buddhism is a religion or not brings up a lot of questions. There's this idea of teaching mindfulness in school. And so, but there's definitely groups of people that believe we shouldn't be teaching mindfulness in schools because mindfulness is based in Buddhism, which is religion for a lot of people. So it, it, it brings up some questions. So the next one, there are three branches of Buddhism. There's Theravada, Mahayana, and another one that I can't pronounce, but I, I don't know much about the third one. And, but Theravada and Mahayana, they are pretty well known. My background is in Theravada, which insight meditation, Vipassana is part of the Theravada branch of Buddhism. Mahayana, actually Zen Buddhism is part of the branch of Mahayana. Tibetan Buddhism is also part of the branch of Mahayana. But I thought this was really interesting. In Christianity, there's kind of these different types of Christian followers. And the one type, they go to church and they make it their practice, but they don't preach it to other people necessarily. And then there's another group of Christians who are evangelical about their Christianity. The same thing here is in Buddhism. According to what I've read here in a book called No Nonsense Buddhism by Noah Roshetta, if I'm wrong about this, feel free to anyone listening or you, Jacob, let me know. But what I read in that book is that in, in general, in the Mahayana branch of Buddhism, they vow to awaken themselves and also vow to awaken all other beings, which differs from Theravada Buddhist branch. They vow to awaken themselves. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that kind of makes sense, though, that it's just a different kind of mindset. I've always found it to be the the evangelical side. That's a really steep hill you got to climb. I've always been drawn to the the non-evangelical types uh, because I like kind of finding in a roundabout way what someone's practice is. What is your understanding, Jacob, of how Buddhism came over to the West? John Kabat-Zinn had a big part to play in that, in like Suzuki Roshi and the Jubus from the Insight Institute. There was a big movement where a lot of Ivy League educated people went over to study Eastern philosophies and then came back. And Alan Watts, he had a lot to do with that. Was there a one one specific moment that that, that it kind of came over? Well, I'm like you, Jacob, and I always have thought of, you know, Buddhism was brought to the U.S. by Americans going over to India and places like that, bringing the teachings and bringing them back, which is true. You have John Cobbett Zinn and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein, Cornfield, yeah. right? But this book pointed out Chinese immigrants in the 1800s brought Buddhism over to the U.S. So that's not something that we think about very often. So something to consider and as part of our history. So when it says they brought it over, were they just practicing it? And then people began asking about it, or were they actively trying to get people aware of it? I would imagine that just being here and practicing it, people were starting to become aware of Buddhism. I've never heard anything about that. I'd, I'd be very curious to learn more. Yeah. And also, 
when I was growing up, my best friend's family was involved in a community of people who was very instrumental in bringing the Dalai Lama over to the U.S. The Dalai Lama started taking trips over to the U.S. in the early 1970s. And I think one of his first trips, he was asked to speak, I want to say in Boston. And then this community of people in Ithaca, New York, which is where I grew up, and which my best friend's family was part of that community, they had also been in contact with the Dalai Lama and the people that worked for the Dalai Lama. And they had invited him to come to central New York on that same trip. And actually, the Dalai Lama spent many more weeks in New York than up in Boston. I think he was in New York spending time with this community for about six or seven weeks. And they started a publishing company called Snow Lion in Ithaca, New York. And they started working out some publishing contracts with the Dalai Lama. So that group in Ithaca was really instrumental in bringing the Tibetan type of Buddhism over. What else is Ithaca known for? I've heard of that. Well, Ithaca is gorgeous, which is okay. our tagline. And that's because we have a lot of waterfalls. Okay. Really big, amazing waterfalls. And it's a very progressive liberal town. So I guess probably known for being a little crunchy and being a little weird, a little bit like Asheville. Yeah. A lot like Asheville. What do you think the difference is between awakening and enlightenment? Is there a difference? Awakening to your true nature. So it's kind of an experience. And then enlightenment is like a full seeing through of every experience, right? So it's not just one. It's like chronic versus acute. You pretty much nailed it. In my mind, I considered these to basically be the same thing. I didn't really differentiate them. But enlightenment is seeing reality as it is. And then awakening is that path, that process getting to that point of seeing reality as it is. Here's a good one. Do Buddhists believe people are inherently good or bad? Yeah. So uh, this was a big draw that I had because I was raised Christian. And that was a big issue that I had with Christianity growing up was the uh, concept of original sin and something that really drew me to Buddhism. And I learned a lot about this by listening to Alan Watts was this idea of you have everyone is born with Buddha nature that we all have it innately within us. And then this whole process is just a uncovering of getting to that true Buddha nature. That's correct. So Buddhism, the idea is that we're not inherently good or inherently bad, but what we do need to do is cultivate compassion. So no matter who we are, we need to cultivate compassion, but it's not because we're bad, for example. I will say the compassion piece doesn't seem very innate to me. That has been something I've really had to work for. I completely agree. And when I teach about compassion, I teach that compassion is a mental process, which is not something that most people think about. When people think about compassion, they think more about from the heart. I believe that compassion is a mental process with heart components, and the heart components are love, trust forgiveness, healing, things of that nature, empathy. But I teach that compassion is actually a mental process. And when we become compassionate, what we're doing is we're getting it right in our minds. The same goes for empathy and validation. I teach that validation is a mental process, but empathy is of the heart. And when we're in relationship, sometimes we can feel empathy and sometimes we can't. We can't force that, but we can commit to validating our partner. It's a mental process. It's getting it right 
in our minds. For me, it's taken a whole lot of work and I'm still a constant uphill battle. The nighttime practice that I've talked about here is the loving kindness practice that has helped a lot, but it seems all of my meditation practice needs to be centered around compassion. When we move into that self-compassion or compassion practice, it just changes our outlook. It's so good for our mental health. And I think about evolution and survival and how the brain was evolved. And if you think about it, being compassionate, was that really an integral part to physically surviving thousands of years ago? Maybe not. Maybe that's why it's not innate. Yeah, I guess so. It is kind of inefficient if you think about it. If I'm trying to survive and my immediate family is trying to survive and I'm trying to have children and reproduce, taking time to take care of your neighbor and things like that would be an inefficient use of time. But the tribalism is a thing. Having a, a kind of a groupthink mentality, it could be very positive in like survival circumstances. Do Buddhists believe in reincarnation? I'm so curious what you think about this one, because this one really stumped me. I was like, what? Yeah, I believe they do. From what I've read, I do believe that there is a pretty large population of Buddhist people who believe in reincarnation. Am I right or not? Well, when you say the word reincarnation, can you define that? What exactly do you mean? So reincarnation, from my understanding of it, is you die in this incarnation. So you're born as Sarah Valley. You die as Sarah Valley. And then your, you know, goes wherever it goes, and then it comes back in a different incarnation, right? And it could be a cat, could be a tree. Yeah, I think there was even a thing in China where you had to have certain reincarnations. This could be totally wrong, but I remember reading something about in China you had to have your reincarnation uh, approved by the government. You <laughs> couldn't do like unlawful reincarnation. I want to look that up. So this is from rw.org. I have no idea what website that is. So let's just assume mm. this is probably not true. But since 2007, Chinese authorities have imposed regulations limiting the recognition of reincarnate lamas, which included most of the religious leaders in Tibetan Buddhism. These provisions specify that reincarnations may not be recognized without state approval and must be born within China's border. So there's like there's certain, yeah, right. it's, it's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, that that's... was 2021. This was, that was, yeah, from December. Uh -huh. Fascinating. That I think that was something along the lines of what I'd heard. They have they have certain limit like you know regulations on reincarnation in China. Uh, oh my gosh! Okay, it sounds like the way you're describing it is we have this individual spirit, and this individual spirit, when we die, leaves our body and then maybe goes into a dog or a bird or another person. Is that how I'm understanding what you're saying? Again, that's what I've heard. I have always thought the same thing. I associate being Buddhist with b believing in reincarnation and you have the soul and after you die, your soul leaves your body and you go into some other type of vessel, some other type of body. Apparently that's not really true. It can be true. I think there's certain paths of certain sects of Buddhism that do believe that. For example, maybe the Tibetan Buddhists believe that, but in general, that's not what Buddhists believe. They believe in rebirth, which is different than reincarnation. The difference between rebirth and reincarnation, and again, if anybody's listening and I'm completely botching this up, please email me and school me on this. But this is what I understand from reading this book by Noah Rochetta, is that rebirth is the idea that we die and the energy of us re is reborn into something else. But it's not like our soul passes on. It's not our spirit passes on. It's not a continuation of something like that. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it does. That may stump people's preconceived notion about Buddhism. I'm hearing most of this stuff from, from Western teachers. So, you know, they definitely put caveats in there and then, but I know that in Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama's book on happiness, which is absolutely incredible, by the way, both of them admitted to having no idea what happens when you die. They both said, we have no idea. And they were, wow. you know, yeah, yeah. So that <laughs> makes a- me feel a little bit more comfortable about it all. Funny enough, I, I guess, you know. Yeah, because if there's any two people on this planet that I would think that would know the answer to that question, yeah, right. even though they might be conflicting answers, I feel like they would they would yeah. know. That, that's they hilarious. Both. As far as Tibetan Buddhism, if you know about the story of the 14th Dalai Lama and how he found him when he was two years old, they found different children that they thought were the 13th Dalai Lama died and then these in one of these children was the soul living on and they would put different items that belonged to the 13th Dalai Lama in front of the child and the child would pick out the ones that they said were theirs from that previous life and apparently the Dalai Lama we have now got all of the items correct or or something like that but this idea of the soul moves on from one life to another. I think this is also definitely a new age idea as well. And I believe in it. I used to be a hypnotherapist. I used to lead people through past life regressions. I've seen several of my own past lives, but this is interesting, kind of opened my mind a little bit about letting go of that idea that a certain substance of your soul moves on like that. I heard this amazing story that Jack Cornfield told that there was this lady that was in this monastery and she was a nun and she was incredible. I mean, she had just such amazing energy and everyone loved being around her. And then one time she left in the middle of the night, she disrobed. And then she came back a couple of years later and she was a, a very devout Christian. And she came back and she was trying to evangelize to the, the monks and nuns. And they go to their teacher and they say, this woman's come back. And then she was a nun and now she's a Christian. And then she just won't leave us alone talking about and trying to get us to convert and become Christians. And their teacher sat and listened for a bit. And then he was like, maybe she's right. Just being open, open to all the possibilities. Well, that's what wisdom is from what my understanding is. That reminds me of something else I read in this book. One of the questions was, do Buddhists believe in God? And I've always thought that Buddhists don't believe in God because God is something that's permanent and Buddhism is about impermanence. That's one of the reasons I am a little bit hesitant about considering myself a Buddhist because I do believe in God. But what the true answer is, according to Noah Rochetta here, who wrote this book called No Nonsense Buddhism, is that the true Buddhist answer to whether there is a God is, I don't know, (laughs) that the agnostic view is the most correct Buddhist view on God. That that was enlightening for me to read about. To me, it's like, I don't know, to, I don't think I could ever say with certainty what's going on here. It's yeah. so strange. <laughs> yeah, and I think the, the more we're able to let go of knowing, the more deeply we can move into our hearts because the heart is not a place of knowing. The, the mind is the place of the knowing, but the heart is the place of, of trust and openness and surrender. Yeah. Is the purpose of practicing Buddhism to end suffering? This is another one that kind of threw me for a loop. What do you think is the purpose of practicing Buddhism to end suffering? I mean, I don't know if it's the purpose, but I tell you, it seems like that's why a lot of people do it. That's really what I got into it for was to end suffering. And I think it's more to understand suffering. I think it's more to understand the nature of suffering and the nature 
of death and life and birth and everything more so than it is to end suffering because it's inevitable <laughs> for my perspective. I think that's a common perception is that when you practice Buddhism, you practice it to end suffering. Some of the thoughts that I've had about it in the past are that practicing Buddhism is we do it so we can realize that we are the source of our own suffering. But the the correct way to think about this is that we practice Buddhism not to end suffering because the suffering doesn't end, but we practice it to end our craving to end suffering. Uh, there we go. Okay. So a real letting go. This one's interesting too. Buddhism teaches about right intent, right action, right speech, right thought. And there's also something called right livelihood. If we have right livelihood, then we are reflecting on the work that we do and asking ourselves, does this work that we do cause any harm to others? So it makes you wonder, does Buddhism consider that certain jobs are not okay to have? This brings up a lot of questions. Yeah. More questions than answers for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I guess that shed some light on that episode that we did about when you become more enlightened with Buddhism, then you really question capitalism. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Here's one more. Are Buddhists vegetarians? It seems like a lot of them are. Most of them that I've met are. But I don't know if it's there's anything specifically that, that states you have to be, right? Well, the answer here is that there's a teaching in Buddhism, do not take the life of another person or animal. So it really has to do with how do you interpret that teaching very similar with Christianity, the 10 commandments, thou shalt not kill. It depends how you interpret that commandment. And the Buddha is Siddhartha. Siddhartha Buddha is said to have told his disciples, eat the food that is offered to you. So they definitely weren't strict vegetarians. But I know that a lot of people that I have met that, that identify as Buddhist are usually vegetarian. I know that Tibetans are not vegetarian. And the reason I know this is because I was telling you about my, the family that I was really close to growing up. They live five houses down the street from where I grew up. And in the early 80s, when I was probably in sixth grade, I went over, left my house, walked down the street knocked on my best friend's door and opened the door. And there were probably about 20 Tibetan Buddhist monks in her living room. And they were standing all around the edge of the walls. I walked in and they were all staring and smiling at me. So imagine having a moment where 20 Buddhist monks are just smiling at you with like such love. I will never forget that moment. So anyway, I go in there and I'm like, oh my gosh, where's my friend? And then her mom comes into the room and she's like, okay, guys, what do you want for lunch? And they said, Kentucky fried chicken. <laughs> Apparently the Buddhist monks love Kentucky fried chicken. So they are, they are not vegetarians. That probably had a lot to do with why you chose the career path you did. I've been around this stuff for my whole life. When I was two, my dad took me to Hindu ashrams. I was living in a commune when I was four and five. Both my parents meditated. My best friend's family was integral in working out things with the Dalai Lama. So yeah, I guess so. It's It's, it's been around. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I would say from my understanding from a lot of countries where Buddhism is the the most practiced religion, a lot of those countries don't 
have a lot of vegetarian, definitely in China and things, people consume a lot of animal products. But talking about my friends specifically that identify as Buddhists are usually vegetarian. Maybe that's more of an American thing. I really I don't so. know. We have the luxury in this country to be able to get nutrients and things from sources outside of animal products. Yeah, we have a, a lot of really great substitutes. Well, I'm always impressed with your knowledge of Buddhism. I stumped you on a few of these, but you knew a lot of them too. <laughs> 